Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, the AP's global business editor, Noreen Gillespie. When I was a kid, my dad liked to say that we lived in a microwave culture. Everybody expected everything in 60 seconds or less. Some 30 years later, we live in a TikTok culture. Entertainment, information, comprehension and mastery, change and transformation in eight seconds or less, if not immediately. But real transformation, the kind of shift that alters the very DNA of a person or an organization or a culture inextricably, takes time, years even. This is a lesson hard fought and well learned by the Associated Press's global business editor, Noreen Gillespie. These days, Noreen is tasked with analyzing customer and reader needs to remake the AP's approach to business news, coverage of money, work, and corporations across the globe. Noreen works hand in hand with editorial, revenue, and product teams to be sure that the AP is not just producing the articles, videos, and photos that customers want and need in the future, but also creating the kind of collaborative, growth mindset-oriented organization that that future requires. She has a long history of involvement in transformative projects at the AP, experience catalyzed by her tenure in and ongoing relationship with the Media Transformation Challenge at the Pointer Institute. Noreen walked through MTC's front door as AP's Deputy Managing Editor for US News in 2019 with a blank sheet of paper and the imperative to face a rapidly changing news ecosystem head on. With the help of her MTC coaches and instructors, Doug Smith, Charlie Baum, and Quentin Hope, Noreen and her AP colleagues began what would be a multi-year transformation of the 175 plus year old institution from a traditional content provider struggling to adapt to a consolidated digital first landscape to a collaborative network of content and capabilities with a focus on the future and a nimbleness to test new means of distribution, collaboration, and engagement, not only with existing customers, but with emerging organizations and networks as well. This week, in the third in our series of MTC-sponsored episodes of Friends and Neighbors that we're calling MTC Journeys, Noreen shares how she took a cue from her earliest assignments to focus the AP on local news and national statehouse coverage then drove alignment and fostered innovation and collaboration to gain quick momentum. She talks about how the AP leveraged those early wins to eventually provide not just content, but also capabilities, training, and partnerships. It's a journey of a thousand steps and many, many months. A journey that left the AP and Noreen herself completely transformed and a journey like all the best ones that's still ongoing. I went through the program in 2019, and I had just taken over as head of U.S. News at the Associated Press. And also, when you looked at the landscape of local news and, and some of the changes that were happening in local media across the country, you know, we were really at a turning point where I think the way that we were delivering our journalism and serving our customers needed to change. We were at a point where we had been kind of holding on to our legacy product, and it was pretty apparent that 
we were having a tough time delivering it. Our customers wanted something different from us. And so we had to try to figure out like in this new landscape where there's all these challenges to local news, you know, how is the AP going to evolve what we are and what value we bring in that environment? And so that was very much where I started the journey. What are we going to be and how am I going to figure out how we're going to get there? How had the product not evolved to fit the times? We were at a point where we were just hearing a lot of different types of feedback in terms of what we should be, how we could help people. What we hadn't really centered on yet was the highest value place where we could do that, mm-hmm. right? What was the the one thing or the couple of things that AP could bring to the local news space that nobody else was really equipped to do? Traditionally, what a lot of newsrooms looked at us as was a set of 50 state wires where we had distinct content for all of those individual states. And then you have, of course, our international news, our national news. But we also have video. We also have audio. We have this rich legacy in our photo report, right? So there's so much more that we bring that you know wasn't necessarily always front and center in that conversation. What we really tried to do was figure out today. <laughs> what is the best thing that we can do for today for newsrooms right now that they can't do for themselves that we can bring? But again, it wasn't clear at the beginning what that answer was going to be, right? What did we need to change? How did we need to change it? What were we going to keep and what were we going to get rid of? It was a difficult process to try to sort through. What was the context in local news at the time? There were a couple of things that were going on. One, there was a lot of consolidation. If you look across broadcast, if you look across print, if you look across digital, you know, there was a lot of ownership consolidation. And I think the other thing that you saw was a lot of people at different stages on their digital conversion journeys. You know, you had some people who were fully already considering digital, some people who were trying to figure out where they were in terms of prioritizing print to digital across every sector, right? Whether it was radio, whether it was a traditional newspaper, whether it was a TV station, everyone was kind of going through this evolution. And so, you know, one of our early hypotheses was that we needed to change the mix of what we were giving all of our customers because their needs had changed dramatically as the way that they publish, communicate, and get news out to their audiences was changing. Before we walk you into the front door, let's back up to like young Noreen, Cub journalist. (laughs) Where did you grow up? What was that childhood like? The neighborhood, the experience, your interests? I grew up in Newtown, Connecticut. That was actually where I got my first taste of journalism and knew that this is what I was going to want to do. When I was in grade school, the local paper there, the Newtown Bee, had kids write for the paper. Uh. And so I, my very first act of journalism was writing a column about my elementary school. And one of the reporters there who covered education, you know, sort of took an interest in what I was writing and gave me tips like, hey, maybe you shouldn't put opinion in your stories and (laughs) things like that. (laughs) Really worked with me to help develop my voice as a writer. And then I went on and, you know, had a couple of freelance gigs in high school and was editor of the high school paper and wound up going to St. Mary's at uh, Notre Dame and was an editor on the college paper there, The Observer. I don't remember a time where I didn't want to be a journalist. That was just pretty much always what I had decided I was going to do and then what I went on to do. (laughs) There wasn't really too much else that I considered along the way. I started my journalism career in Connecticut, too, at the Hartford Bureau for AP, you know, just a few miles away from where I grew up. So it was an interesting time because I got to see the state in a much different lens than I had when I grew up there, right? I got to see the whole state, learn a lot about it from covering it from different perspectives and sort of get out of the the bubble that I was in in Fairfield County and, and really get to learn about the complexity of the entire state. And what itch did it scratch that very first column for the B for you as a young grade school student? 
I liked telling the story of my school for the town, mm-hmm. you know, sort of highlighting things that were happening inside that building for everyone to see. And the reaction to it was always kind of fun too. You'd be at the grocery store and somebody would say, oh, hey, you know, I read your column. And, you know, <laughs> you know, it was an early window into how important information and news and voice is in communities, right? To make them feel like they are a place, right? I think that that's one of the things that a lot of news outlets do in these small spaces, right? They're connectors, right? They bring people together. They bring communities together. What was the tenor in the household around that ambition? Like what kind of things were discussed around the dinner table? My mom and my stepdad are both teachers. And so, you know, what was happening in local news sources was always a matter of conversation because it usually directly impacted their lives. But consumption of news was always a topic, whether it was at our table or I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house growing up and, you know, my grandfather would leave the New York Times on the table every morning and we'd talk about what was on the front page and we'd read the editorials together. And so having access to news was a constant. It was a daily habit for most people that were growing up in my family and and talking about current events was something that we did fairly frequently. So it was known to us that that was a habit, right? That's That's what we did. You mentioned some of those early assignments in Hartford. What are some of those lessons, like the early hard lessons that stuck? I feel like I was trained by the best. I was very fortunate to have a lot of colleagues that made an investment in me and, you know, helped teach me and, and, you know, didn't not give me opportunities because I was very green and very young. Whether, you know, it was the sports editor at the time, you know, taking care to show me how to write a game story or how to do a box score or some of the more seasoned reporters working with me on my speed and my leads or catching me when I made a reporting mistake, right? And explained how that had happened. I feel like I was very fortunate to get some of the best on the ground training that I ever could have gotten in the industry. And part of the reason that I was able to take on really tough things was because, you know, they took the time with me to to build me into a good reporter. I had a very close colleague when I was at the State House who, you know, I mean, that's very overwhelming. You know, I was I was 22 or 23 and walking into a state yeah. house with people <laughs> decades older than me in the press room. She let me ask any question. She gave me advice. She introduced me to people. She, you know, showed mm-hmm. me her network and and shared it with me. And the rest of the press room did too, honestly. You know, it helped me in that first job. And if I had to ask what an acronym was, <laughs> there were all sorts of people I could whisper to and and find out the answer. And I think all of those interactions helped me build my confidence. There's a lot of mobility in, in your career arc, you know, a lot, of, a lot of stops, Atlanta, Chicago, New York. What were you reaching towards? So I don't know that I went into it necessarily knowing what the ultimate dream job was going to be. So, you know, when I went to Atlanta, it was the opportunity to reorganize the company and make us more efficient in terms of our filing and to lead a desk for the first time. When I went to Chicago, it was the chance to run a breaking news team in the middle of the country and, you know, start an operation there. I had the opportunity to help run our sports department for a few years and think in new ways about the top 25 poll and and run the Olympics with my colleague. And I mean, they were all very different experiences. But I think one of the things that's really fantastic about AP is that they take chances on people. They will they will let you walk into that space and know that you can grow into that job and help you do it. And I think I've just had that experience over and over and over again. And, And because of that, have been able to have this sort of rich, diverse set of experiences and different subject areas and in different parts of the country. And at some point in there, you pivot from banging out a story or three or six a day to 
coordinating other people doing so. How did you manage that transition? What were some early stumbling blocks or lessons learned? So I think that the difference in being in one of sort of the frontline jobs and then in a in a more coordinating role or leadership role is that you have to learn that your success is through the success of other people, right? Mm-hmm. You're not going to be in a position where you can directly impact every story, every strategic initiative, you know, but you've got to set the tone, and I think, in terms of where you're going. And so that was really hard. I mean, I do remember when I took over the U.S. News job, the first thing that happened was Hurricane Harvey. And mm-hmm. I realized in that moment, I'm like, okay, I have to manage this very, very differently. This is not my individual story at this point. This is our mm-hmm. story. And we have to figure out, you know, what infrastructure do we need around that story to be successful? What are we trying to hit journalistically? You know, how can we improve and evolve that? And it was a very different role than trying to figure out like, what's the lead? Do we have the right image? You know, that, that I had a team for that. Right. But I had to try to make sure that all of those different parts of the team were working together. Let's walk you in the door in 2019 pre-pandemic and Charlie and Karen and the gang and and the previous class are facing you, right? Talk a little bit, if you will, about the onboarding process and and what it felt like to walk in there. It sounds like you walked in there with like a blank page, if I understand correctly. We definitely had a blank page. And I remember telling my boss at the time, like, oh, we're going to figure this out in a year. And he said, I don't know. I think it might take a little <laughs> right. bit longer than that. I think I was a little bit overconfident about <laughs> how long this might actually take. I remember talking to Doug about, you know, exactly what we were up against. And he's, of course, familiar with the challenge and he was passionate about it. And it was amazing to me pretty early on just what a network existed within this program to help you. That people who you would feel like you had no business talking to suddenly were like helping you with your challenge and giving you perspectives that you had never considered and were all just so open and had their own challenges themselves that they wanted that fe- same feedback about. And I think that um, I was, you know, a similar sort of level of awe about the community that existed there and a little bit of disbelief that I was in that room, you know, to yeah. be totally honest about it, you know, and then also very daunted by the fact that, you know, I always felt like failure wasn't an option not completing it was not going to be an acceptable outcome. And so I think I, at the beginning and all through it, and even after I left, I think still carried that pretty deeply. It ended up being, and I suspect continues to be a multi-year challenge, right? That evolves over time, that benefits from the coaches and the network and the tools over time. So but let's start at the start, you know, day two, as you're, you know, drinking from the fire hose of tools. We've had so many people at AP that have gone through the program. So, and I had a very close colleague, Michael DiRuso, who I'm working with now, um, he had been through it. And so, you know, he would at the time say like, this is the language they would use in the program. And I had other colleagues who had also been through it, who would say, this is what I learned in, in MTC. And so I had a little bit of an idea what I was walking into. But yes, the, that first week with all of the tools is very overwhelming. I remember looking at Rayui and thinking like, I, I'm not sure I get this and I'm not sure I'm ever going to use it. You know? Yeah. It was definitely overwhelming. And it felt like you were standing in the middle of a really intense graduate school class <laughs> going, wait, am I really supposed to be in this program? It was a lot for sure. But you know, with the tools, one of the things that I've found over time is that 
depending on your personality type and depending on the type of work that you're doing, you may rotate through different tools at different points, right? You're not going to use all of them all of the time. Some you may never use because it just doesn't work for your leadership style. And I think I've definitely found, you know, a tight few that I tend to gravitate back to on, you know, whether it's on the U.S. News Project or any other project that I'm working on, just find the ones that work for you. But in that first week, that's not always clear, right? It's like you feel like you have to get 100% on every quiz. (laughs) It's like um, PTSD just talking about it. At the same time, it's worth noting it is the universal response, including what you just said. Like, I don't think I get it. I don't think I ever will. So we're not alone, which is one of my overwhelming responses to the program. And I was the punk rock kid from MTV News. So I really had, you know, imposter syndrome. You're not sure you belong. And then you start sharing, sort of authentically sharing challenges and connecting with the sort of human parts of it. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, we are really in this together. When you're doing those presentations, when you've got your PowerPoint deck that you've labored over, you're really just looking for what the challenge is, right? And yeah. I, that we became, I think, a little bit more aware of that as, the, as it went on. And to hear somebody look at what you are doing and say, that's revolutionary. If you can pull that off, that's revolutionary. That external perspective, I think, particularly for large organizations, particularly for legacy organizations, to hear that external perspective is really empowering. It's either a confirmation of strategy that you're on the right track, or it's a new insight that you hadn't considered. Or sometimes, like, if you're looking out at a group of puzzled faces and they say, all right, let's figure out how we're going to help you, that's just as powerful. I love that you used revolutionary because you really do begin to feel this sort of torpor and like lethargy and not to besmirch any of the entities, but they're slow movers. That's part of what makes the challenge and why transformation is so critical. So let's get into the challenge a little bit. How did you determine it? How did you shape it? Early on, one of the things that I found most powerful was using the from to statement. (laughs) What are we right now and what are we going to be? We took a look at what only AP could be. That was one of the things that as I was trying to build that from to statement, you know, and we were trying to figure out what role the AP could play in local news and in U.S. news, statehouse reporting became something that was very important very early on. And so a question of how we were going to sustain our statehouse footprint into the future, particularly at a moment where democracies and elections were being challenged in all sorts of different ways. We had misinformation. We had polarization. We didn't know it yet, but we were going to enter a period where elections would be challenged. And so One of the early hypotheses was that that was something that we needed to hold on to with both hands and and really preserve. And I didn't necessarily know what the solution was going to be. I knew it was incredibly difficult for us to maintain that footprint on our own with no help, but also critical for the industry and critical for us that we kept that. While there may be different aspects of what we look like locally that we might change, it was the foundation in a lot of ways. And so we kind of early in the program placed a marker and that we had to figure out what that, how we were going to handle that going forward. And we had started to have some talks with Report for America about ways that AP and Report for America could work together. And after, you know, a few months of talks, we were going through the program, we came up with a partnership that would put 17 reporters into state houses. One of them was a data journalist that worked across all 50 states to do a couple of things. One, make sure that AP's statehouse footprint was intact and that that reporting stayed as one of the primary things that we were offering in the States. And two, you know, I think it gave us a way to train another generation of statehouse reporters. 
and many of them who are working for us in a full-time capacity now. And it it just gave us a way to preserve a section of the report that was critical to democracy and also critical to local news. It was a quick win. It was a big win for us. It gave us a foundation to kind of start to think about everything else we could do in the local space. I'm guessing also that there was not a sense of alignment across these operations. In other words, I don't know, the reporter in Idaho wasn't necessarily aligned with the reporter in Illinois or Alabama. What was the state of alignment and collaboration across these various efforts and entities when, you know, in the from versus the two? Well, I think we saw an opportunity to take what was happening in disparate parts around the country and make it make it one team operation, right? And that's not just in statehouse reporting either. I mean, I think one of the things that emerged as we went through this process was that we needed a holistic report. We needed Mm -hmm. a report that captured the country rather than capturing it in fragments. And that was something that was, I think, emerging for us at the end of the MTC program and something that really came into full view in the year or so after the program. We had for years been hearing a lot about, you know, I need news from this part of the country. I need news from this part of the country. And when we were going through our pandemic coverage, we put a huge priority on tell the story big, tell the story once, connect the dots, Mm -hmm. tell us what this adds up to. And we were in one customer conversation with a local news outlet who said, I can see where I fit in this coverage. I don't have the ability to see what's going on beyond my community, but because AP is doing that for me, I can now see where my community story fits in the broader narrative. Right. That was a huge light bulb moment for us, right? Because we have this ability. We've got reporters in all 50 states. We've got reporters around the globe. We can show the totality of an issue. And that, in turn, helped a lot of our local customers understand their experience in a way that they may not have if they didn't have our reporting in their newsroom. And so we started to kind of ask, what would this look like if we were able to execute the report that way? Maybe we have been thinking about how we empower local news all wrong. (laughs) Or maybe there's a way that this can evolve into a different type of value. Which came first, the innovation around state houses, this sort of alignment or the broader report, or were they truly simultaneous? The state house initiative came first. And then we started to say, okay, this is one way that we can empower local reporting. This is what we provide. This is a baseline of what you're going to get from AP. And then it sort of turned into this constellation of other projects that all added up to what we bring, right, to this local Mm -hmm. news ecosystem. And then we also, at the same time, we're developing a program called StoryShare, where we are bringing together different newsrooms across either topic or geography to share content. We just launched an education-related story share, and we've got, you know, ed labs from all over the country sharing their reporting. So some of the best work that before was limited to a local audience or a small audience is now available. Last year, we launched something called Localize It. We had been in conversations with a customer group who said, you know, I think we're missing chances to really use AP content because we're missing opportunities to localize can you help us localize? And that that was a surprising conversation to me. And mostly because you think we kind of had always thought of it like, all right, this we've got content that we put out into the world and then the local entity should know how to localize it. But what we discovered is that we were having all of these brainstorming conversations, like any newsroom does, right? About, 
okay, so this distribution of federal money is going to happen, and then it's up to the local officials to decide where it's going to go and who the recipient is. And that wasn't necessarily making it into the story, but it's incredibly useful information. And so we started putting together story guides that would capture some of the questions and information and data sources that were coming up in our reporting process and our brainstorming conversations, sometimes questions that we were getting from newsrooms that could then lead us to give them additional information in terms of how they might shape their own local report, sourcing suggestions. And now we're doing them pretty much across every major breaking story. And it's been really inspiring to see how local newsrooms are using them. We've had one group say, we're working remotely. All of our editors are in different places. This is like giving us the conversation. Or, yeah. you know, or I can give this to a brand new reporter and some of the legwork's already done for them. They're not starting completely from scratch. And so what all of this sort of led to was this evolution of we are not just content at AP. Mm -hmm. We are content plus capability. We can give you the capability to produce your own content, but you also know that you can count on getting really high quality fact-based information from us. So in terms of how we support local news, we've evolved from being a fire hose of content to a partner that can help them with mm -hmm. their audience goals, to a partner that can help them with their reporting process, who can help them fill gaps in their newsroom. The Story Share Experiment, the Report for America partnership. At the time, it felt like that was the project, but what it was really adding up to was a, a, a strategy shift that where we saw ourselves differently and we helped our customers see us differently too. I'm so struck by how simply, beautifully valuable it can be to connect people who have shared interests find a way to get them to work together and then to create a cohesion and communication amongst them, which seems fairly elemental, but you're living proof that that's a multi-year journey. We've always been a cooperative, right? So I think that part of one of our early revelations was that we just had to reinvent what we meant by that in some mm. ways, right? We had to reinvent the way that we cooperate there were new ways that we could apply the cooperative for the modern era. And I think that's why, you know, if you go from picking up stories to creating an environment like StoryShare, it meets the needs of our newsrooms a little bit more. We're going to be helping them. So changing the way that we looked at shared content, I think, was a really important way of making sure that we were meeting our customers where they are in their own business model journeys, but also making sure that we remain a cooperative, right, in terms of how we share content. The reality about collaboration is that it is quite hard, but once you get to a place where you can bake it into your norms as an organization, it then becomes easier. Every step of the way, you know, we started talking to customers at the beginning of this project, and we continued on a quarterly basis for really almost three years. And now that's baked into our annual process, right? I mean, it wasn't like we weren't talking to them before, but we would physically visit a lot. And during the pandemic, we, everyone had to do Zoom calls. So it was suddenly very easy to put together a member call. And we had a lot of groups that that welcomed that interaction and gave us really honest reaction and, and were really transparent about what they saw as strengths and weaknesses in AP's offerings, and then also what their own challenges were, what their own gaps were in their newsroom. And so we were able to, in real time, notice opportunity for us to create something that would serve them. And so what we wound up doing after we, we heard all of these conversations and we realized that the needs were converging between mm -hmm. TV, radio, digital, print in a lot of ways, because everybody was 
evolving to be a digital outlet in a lot of cases. You know, they needed different content from us. Outlets that never wanted audio from us before suddenly had a need for audio because Mm -hmm. they were embedding audio on sites. They were creating podcasts. Folks wanted to use different elements on social. If you were an outlet that previously had just gotten broadcast text from us, now all of a sudden you really wanted the full-length stories because... You have a website you have to fill, right? Or you want more input to give to your hosts or your talent, right? So that you can have a different kind of conversation. So suddenly we realized that a lot of the content that we had been previously sort of giving to customers in a segmented way was needed and wanted and could be used by every single orientation of outlet. And so we created a product that had a better mix, (laughs) that not only had all of these capabilities baked into it, but was truly a digital product, right? It wasn't segmented by format anymore. Because it's been a multi-year undertaking or the challenge as initially considered has evolved and expanded and continued, can you give us the broad strokes, literally like, well, we started here, then this happened, you know, sort of the steps, if you will, through the evolution of that challenge to date? We started in a place where We wanted to make sure that we were still doing something to support local news, to support our customers who were trying to serve their local communities. And so the two first steps were StoryShare and Report for America. And then both of those things evolved into this bigger shift, right? The bigger shift that the AP is not just a provider. We are also a partner in helping you reach your audience goals and helping you reach your local audiences. And how we're going to do that is far more robust than the ways that we've been doing that before. The sole way that we had been doing that often was through the lens of of what content we provided. And I think that through all of these different experiments, whether it was building up the statehouse footprint, whether it was creating a new collaborative story sharing network, creating localize it, co-creating projects with our customers and serving as project manager for those collaborations, providing training sessions on, Mm -hmm. you know, back to school coverage. All of those things added up to this idea that we are more than the content that you see on the wire every day. You know, we are true partners for your newsroom. We are content, we are capability. And those two things kind of gave us the foundation to keep adding. I didn't necessarily see that, I think, in in 2019. I think we were really excited that we had done two great things to help local news. And then over the next two years, it it really built itself into a strategy. And so, you know, it wasn't a one-year thing. We made a lot of progress in one year, but the arc of it really took about three. How did that manifest vis-a-vis the ongoing engagement with MTC. In other words, I assume there was a baton handoff and you kind of broadened the collective team working on these initiatives by sending them to the next class of MTC. Can you give me a lens on that? The engagement definitely still goes on. I have a colleague who's been participating in the program for the past year who is a key business contact. He's been working on this with us from the beginning. And this was his challenge as well, right? He took the next part of the challenge, uh, the product part of the challenge through the past year. I talk to Doug frequently. <laughs> you know, I've called Quentin. I've called Charlie. It's an ongoing network. It, it definitely does not die the second you walk out the door in January. <laughs> and yeah. that support is key, right? I think that having somebody externally help you when you go through this type of a challenge. I mean, I remember what Doug said in the middle of 2019, he asked me, what does this all add up to? Mm-hmm. And I paused 
And I thought, well, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know what to say at that moment, but he was absolutely right. Like it, it was progress, but it, it didn't add up to anything yet. Mm. And it, it took three years to get it there. But that question was always in the back of my head. What does this all add up to? You know, it wasn't enough to just do one or two great projects. It, it had to lead to a strategy shift. That was what was going to drive transformational change. Because there was an evolution, there was an ongoing undertaking that continued to evolve and expand and drive greater and greater transformation internally. I'm interested in how, who drove that. We had a cross-functional team. And I think that the team that I worked with in the U.S., you know, I pulled them into segments of this project all the time. I am a big believer that news and strategy have to follow each other, that if you try to do them in a bubble, (laughs) the news has to inform the strategy, the strategy has to inform the news. And so anytime I lead a team, I try to take a little bit of both of those things and bake it into their jobs. So we had some of the news directors who worked for me were involved in the customer consulting and member newsrooms. They drove some of those relationships and and came up with the insights because then they could start to see the same problems that we were going to have to solve, right? You know, do we need a different structure in the newsroom? We didn't have a team that was going to produce localizing guides. Like it was them. They just, we, we yeah. dove in and we did it alongside our work. And, and now we just appointed a director of local news success who is leading that program. And now we have a dedicated resource for it who can drive it and really own it. But, you know, when it started, it was organic. We just did it ourselves. You know? yeah. So yeah. we were trying to, we were trying to prove the concept, but they, they were all in that alongside me. That was how we started to build buy-in. That was how we started to get broader perspective about what problems we really needed to solve. We had a cross-functional team. Our our business colleagues were heavily involved with this, right? You know, whether it was sort of prospecting parts of the country that were ready for a new story share network, coming up with ideas about, you know, what customers were going to be excited about this and where we might have challenges. It was a pretty integrated effort all along. And we definitely pulled more people in along the way. You know, I think at the beginning it was a much tighter group. And then as it grew to be a bigger initiative, we added to the team. Talk about, if you would, the value of the alumni network. Within AP, we have a number of alums that have gone through the program. And I think that one of the things that's really nice about that is when you start to break out the language, when you start to say something like constituency map, when you start mm-hmm. to say something like snowman, or, you know, you look at a PowerPoint and you see the S curve, right? Yeah. It's understood because there's so many people throughout the organization who've gone through the program and have either formally or informally used it in their work. There's just a moment of recognition. You're like, oh, okay, that's MTC. Got it. Yeah. And that helps, I think, when you're trying to design a change project, when you're trying to embark on these major, major difficult things. It's nice to have that person in the room who who gets what you're doing, either overtly or or subtly. And it creates a little bit of a community and a process that's ingrained about how this actually happens, right? So you can avoid some of the problems like activity, you know, versus outcome. You know, I think they, <laughs> when you've got colleagues who who just see that language and speak it and have been through it themselves, that really, really helps. Our group in 2019, people meet for dinner when they're in cities. During the pandemic, we had periodic Zoom calls like in the middle of a Friday afternoon. And it was the mood, the like the the mood shift that happens when everybody is back in that room, either physically or virtually, you know, there's an energy there that is recreated and I think is very inspiring. I think, you know, when we were at the the depths of that year, some of those calls were the brightest moments because people could share what they were doing. And even though everything was so hard, people were still doing really inspirational work. 
And I think it helped re-energize everybody when we were able to get together for those moments. One of the topics I'm most personally interested in because I find it to be just a challenge and I think a challenge we're all wrestling with is this idea of like, how do you balance your own humanity, your own experience in the world as a person versus a suit, if you will? And how do you, Noreen, try and balance the imperative of a phone that is presumably blowing up all the time and a family and the rest of your human experience? That is a really, really good question. And <laughs> good. It's, it's one that I've had to really wrestle with recently, to be totally honest about it. You know, I oversaw U.S. news from 2017 until 2022, and that was one of the most tumultuous, busy, critical times that we have lived through. And, you know, I really had to sit down and think fairly recently about, you know, how much I was showing up at home and how much I was showing up at work. And, you know, my son just entered middle school and he recently got a cell phone and we've been having a lot of conversations about, you know, how you manage your life with a cell phone. And, you know, I, we sat down to dinner the other night and I said, Rylan, no, no phone at the table. And he's like, but your phone is at the table. <laughs> like, okay, you're right. I'm going to put my phone up on the hutch. I'm somebody who works very hard. I show up, you know, I'm, you know, if something is happening, I'm going to be responsive. But, you know, there was definitely, I think, a moment where I had to say, you know, I've got to show up at home a little bit more right now. I am, I am not showing up at home as much as I need to because of how intense this has been. And so I've had to think pretty carefully about, all right, I need to create a boundary. Like, what am I, what am I bringing home with me today and why? What conversations am I bringing home with me mm -hmm. today and why? How much am I talking about what happened at work when I'm home and should be talking about what happened on the soccer field? Mm -hmm. It's an everyday choice right now. And it's a good one. It's a good calibration point. You know, I am so proud of the work that we did, you know, over the past five years and, and what we accomplished. You know, I also think like at the moment, <laughs> I need to take a little bit of time and, and focus on the folks that were, you know, sitting in the living room watching me do it <laughs> while everything was, was going crazy. And I'm struck often, particularly in leadership, that you are ultimately modeling that for your teams. How did you think about that in the throes of a pandemic when everyone's tethered all the time? We figured it out day by day and we figured it out conversation by conversation. I think there was a moment two or three days in, in March. And I remember, you know, everyone kept apologizing for their kids being on calls and mm -hmm. for dogs in the background and for chaos. And I just, we were on one of our daily news calls and I said, all right, for beginning today, like nobody has to apologize for this. Just do what you can yeah. do, get on the call and we're just going to be a team. And there were other days I think where people couldn't really talk about the news and we just sort of talked in the morning, yeah. right? We just, you know, we spent that time together because that's what we needed to do on that particular day. Like every organization, it was hard to be a part. I think AP has people who have been at the organization for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And yeah. we've, a lot of us have deep relationships that go back decades. And I think that it might have been harder in some ways to not see people that much. We started virtual happy hours. When there was someone in our newsroom who was yeah. a DJ on in Friday afternoons. There was no agenda. People would just like shout out something yeah. good that happened that week or just say something. And it was, it was, you know, we'd just hang out for a few minutes on Zoom on Friday afternoons. Of course, this like feels incredibly awkward now, but at the time it was a way for us to kind of build community. We created no Zoom hours where mm -hmm. people could be unscheduled. It was a break of this, you know, constant being on on the screen. 
we didn't set requirements that you had to be on video. You could be on video or audio, however it worked. We recognized that people were trying to balance a lot. And we talked about it a lot. You know, I spent, yeah. I, th- I think a lot of my one-on-ones with my team would often be spent talking about how they were managing school and work and, you know, what they were feeling or what how they were connecting with their teams and what they were doing and experimenting with. And I never really tried to hide how I was feeling or make other people feel like they had to hide what yeah. they were feeling. I mean, there was there was one day I remember, I don't remember what we were dealing with. It was a particularly difficult story or, or some, some particularly dark moment of 2020. I just said, guys, I can't host today. I need somebody to, to help me out. I always just tried to be appropriately vulnerable and to give them the space to do that too. Cause I mean, there was no, there was no blueprint for that. There was no management best practice for that. You know, we just kind of had to do the best that we could. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Be appropriately vulnerable. And I mean, being vulnerable at all is I think a challenge in leadership, but, but maybe a positive byproduct of the last couple of years I always have this image of the suit and the boardroom and the the rigidity that had to slip away if you had any compassion at all. I've always tried to bring my whole self <laughs> to yeah. work. It's 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 hard for me not to. What we lived through in 2020 just it almost turbocharged that in some yeah. ways, right? Everyone doesn't need to know everything that's going on with you at all times, but I do think, you know, giving people the space to not feel like they have to be perfect or, you know, can't question or, you know, that if they have something going on in their lives that they can't share it. I mean, there was one day where somebody was struggling. I think that, you know, his son had a a homework assignment about sharks and like we spent 10 minutes on the call giving him Uh, shark facts. It just evolved. I love it. You know, not every day you got to get work done too, but I think, you know, we, we really did try to create space that, you know, when things like that happened, it was, those are team building moments. You know, <laughs> People yeah. remember that call. I'd like to ask if I missed anything major from an MTC standpoint, from your perspective. One of the biggest takeaways that I had from MTC was that there's a learned process around this. You're not just winging mm-hmm. it. You're not just coming up with a good idea and saying, this is how I'm going to implement it across my organization, right? It really taught me that when you run into roadblocks, here's how you can solve them. There's a method mm-hmm. to this. It's not just you against the world. The importance of, of having a process and keeping data and holding yourself accountable with goals. It wasn't that I hadn't ever done that before, but I hadn't done it with the same level of discipline. And I think that having that level and being reminded that you had to have that level of discipline was really, really helpful. When you think back to that young woman writing her first column, how would you advise her or what would you tell her about approaching the journey ahead? I think when you are a kid, you look at what you want to do as just wanting to do it, right? And getting there. Mm -hmm. You may not think about what it takes once you are there. I would tell her to not be afraid of any challenge that she is faced with. They are achievable, they are conquerable, and they teach you a lot about your confidence to go into other situations and and conquer those too, regardless of whether or not you fully understand the challenge when you start it. Friends and Neighbors is an essential industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborshow.com. And for more on MTC, please go to the Media Transformation Challenge program at pointer.org. And please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Hey.